Tonight is the last lecture of Rare Book School 1989. Um, our speaker is Thomas Staley, who is the new director for the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas, and who is Chancellor's Professor for the book in the English Department. Professor Staley. Thank you very much. This is a paper without title, but I imagine Mr. Bellinger figure out what I'm talking about. I'm sure you will. I'm extremely pleased to be here this afternoon to speak to a group whose interests are so closely tied with my own. Can you hear me back there all right? By virtue of inclination and circumstances, I've been involved with collecting 20th century literature for over 30 years having collected privately since I was about 20 years old. My own collecting has coincided with my professional and scholarly interest in James Joyce and other modernists. From 1965 till 68, I came to the, <clears throat> I worked to develop what became the Modern Authors Collection of the University of Tulsa. And from uh, September of last year, I came to the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas. Coming there for me was rather like Midas being allowed to live in Fort Knox. But like all collectors who are seldom content, uh, I now look with envy at the many collections at Tulsa that, in a sense, have now gotten away. It's been nearly a year since I came to the HRC as its director. During this past year, the staff and I have been deeply involved in defining the center's mission and clarifying its role as a research center in the humanities. And indeed, concurrently, the Western world is still just as diligently and less successfully trying to define the role of the humanities in our culture generally. The debates widely covered in the national press are familiar to all of us, and the most strenuous occur over the issue of curriculum. And we all know that in America, changing a curriculum entails all of the physical and psychological difficulties of moving a cemetery. Closer to us, however, are the academic debates uh, regarding the canon of literature and uh, even more pressing the nature of language and the nature of writing itself. My own discipline, literature, is extremely unsettled at present and the issues which scholars in this field are debating are of vital interest to us at the Ransom Center. Research libraries are to some degree removed from the departmental battles, but their implications affect us and they raise issues with which we must eventually contend. We do not have the luxury of disinterested parties who can remain aloof. It's only to have a tremendous grasp of the obvious to state the staffs of research libraries must remain aware of the shifting arguments, methodologies, and procedures that shape and reshape the disciplines. While we have concentrated on the definition and clarification of our own role, at the Humanities Research Center, we've not been inattentive to the general climate of research in the humanities, the direction of literary scholarship, the complex relationships between libraries and the academic disciplines, and the frequently confusing developments in the library world itself, the issues of automation and archival retrieval, the ghostly specter of the inevitable deterioration of our manuscripts and 20th century books, and a host of other concerns that we share with our colleagues in all of these professions and disciplines. In spite of our sound, rational response to all of these issues, 
There are times when we believe our best approach is the way William Faulkner suggested one approach Joyce's Ulysses, as the illiterate Baptist preacher approaches the New Testament with faith. In September of last year, when we embarked on a one-year strategic plan, we were aware that for all of the internal and institutional needs we had, it would be simplistic and therefore rash not to take into consideration from the beginning every issue that affected our environment, those outside factors over most of which we had little or no control. But we first had to know better who we were and where we were, where we were going before we could take a chart as to what the direction was really to be. In short, we had to determine more precisely what our mission was. Let me for a moment speak about the Ransom Center. It is, as many of you know, not an institution that lends itself to easy definition, and this was the first problem we needed to address. Nearly everyone connected with the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center and those on the University of Texas campus who attempt to define the center, whether out of myth, dream, fantasy, or even blind self-interest, evoke the vision of Harry Ransom. Professor, Dean, Vice President, President, and Chancellor in that order, and creator of the HRHRC. Like many brilliant leaders of institutions, he could be both precise and vague, depending upon how he judged the situation. Of his singular role in the creation and development of the HRC, however, there's no doubt. He was an enormously complex person who was by turns a quiet man of letters, a seasoned and crafty administrator, a poet of no little accomplishment, a lobbyist in one of the trickiest state governments in the country, a visionary in a part of the world that admired as well as destroyed visionaries. That he focused on libraries is not remarkable for him, given his background, but that he was able to realize this vision, give value to it to others, was not remarkable, but miraculous. The world is filled with visionaries, but only rarely does one find that the times and the means come together in one remarkable Hegelian synthesis to bring dream and reality together. Ransom's incursions into the book world are legend, and I'll not dwell on those here today. But the accretive message of his correspondence is clear. He knew he had a moment in time to do what he did, and he was well aware of this temporality. The players in Texas would change, and equally importantly, even while some would decry his spending, he knew he had started a major trend in modern collecting, one that was to reshape the thinking of the entire enterprise. This latter point is the subject of another talk, but probably a book. Ransom's legacy to the entire University of Texas is gigantic, but the HRC remains his most visible contribution and the prime source of his legend, and certainly his fame in the world of rare books and libraries. The Ransom Center is a unique institution, complex because of its eclectic holdings and Ransom's wholesale acquisitions, but more so because of its role as part of the major public university. Unlike the Morgan, Huntington, or Newberry, the HRC does not stand independently. Unlike the Beinecke or the John Carter Brown, it's not part of a private university. It is dependent upon funding from the citizens of Texas. It is accountable through the administration and regents to the legislature. But what the Ransom Center does have in common with those private institutions that I've mentioned is the fact that it's a great research library. With its over 50,000 works of art, 
5 million photographs, over a million books and nearly 10 million manuscripts, it's a major international resource. And although its great reputation quite rightly rests on its massive 20th century collections, its strength in Renaissance, 17th and 19th century English literature is distinguished, capped recently by the acquisition of the famous Fortzheimer Library. I've not come to praise Caesar, however, but rather to share with you the problems, the responsibilities, and the opportunities that we have in common from the perspective of our own deliberations over the past year at the Ransom Center. And we're all aware that we're coming within a decade of the end of the roller coaster ride that was the library and book world of the 20th century. As an academic institution goes through the detailed process of strategic planning, such as we did at the HRC, you realize that there are infinite possibilities and always, alas, even in Texas, finite resources. Such a situation is one we all face, and it necessitates calculation, judgment, and choice. I'll point out some of the decisions that we've made, which in many cases have ratified earlier directions, but have nullified or reversed others. Our decisions have been based upon, we hope, reasonable expectations of funding, a careful judgment of our strength, and an analysis of our weaknesses. We have only begun in a systematic way to evaluate our entire book and manuscript collections. I should even say catalog them. It was assumed and correctly that our preeminent strengths were in 20th century British and American holdings, with our 20th century French collections also extremely rich. Our preliminary evaluations confirmed the obvious. These were our great strengths, but we are much stronger, I believe, in British than in American 20th century collections. But at this juncture in the century, we have a bit more perspective than we did in, say, 1975 or 1960 when we evaluated value these collections last. We realized that by the end of the century, we would see that our collections really covered the first half of the century and dropped severely after 1950 if we did not establish a plan to remedy the current trend. When Ransom made his great acquisitions in the 60s, he was frequently collecting contemporary authors, frequently taking risks in something that we too have to do. In order to bring some balance to our modern collections, we've embarked on a complex plan to acquire manuscripts and printed materials of writers who published their first work after 1950. There is no magic in this plan. It is detailed, systematic, selective, and involves many judgments, some of which, of course, are not literary, having to do with existing holdings, potential availability of material, and a host of other considerations. It is discriminating, but at the same time not fixed, it involves many outside opinions, many from faculty members on the University of Texas campus, as well as book people from outside, several in this room. Given the changes in tax laws, the availability of space, and the cost of cataloging and preservation, we have not and will not develop anything that resembles the whole pro wholesale program at Boston University. The outline of this strategy, its format and structure are not secret, but detailed and could be the basis for yet another discussion. In conjunction with this plan, we are, of course, reviewing with great care our large existing post-1950 holdings and our pre-1950 holdings and developing systematic lacunae lists for books and desiderata lists for pre-publication materials of certain authors. As deep as our pre-1950 20th century British and American literary materials are, we plan to make them even more comprehensive for research. It has happened more than once that a scholar working on a particular manuscript at the HRC has asked for the first edition of the work and it has not been available. 
It is well enough to begin a major acquisition policy such as I have discussed, but an equally high priority for us is the development of an automated online catalog for all of our manuscripts. Further online, excuse the pun, will be the cataloging of file level of all, all of our publishers and bookstore archives. Of the latter, Drake's and the Gotham Bookmart are the most prominent. Most of you are aware of the issues related to such large undertakings that I've described as far as cataloging and preservation are concerned, but we're about to begin this process. Because we are so closely linked to 20th century literary materials, it is fortunate that the HRC also holds important collections in film, such as the Selznick Archive, and major ballet materials, two important art forms uniquely identified with the 20th century. With regard to film, the issues related to the conservation of nitrate film are explosive. <laughs> Given the chemical properties of all 20th century materials, the problem of conservation is an especially daunting one. Our conservation lab is understaffed, under-budgeted, overworked, and places, quite rightly, financial demands upon us that we can hardly meet. Faced with the prospect of yellow dust, however, we must make greater inroads in this vital area. We must also participate in research that will develop the chemistry as well as the craftsmanship of restoration to retard severely what appears to be that inevitable process. What we encounter nearly every day with our materials is depressing. We have a staff of 14 conservators in our conservation department, now reduced by 50%. It was 21. This number is clearly inadequate for the tasks at hand. Meanwhile, preservation training for all of our librarians and staff is ongoing, as I'm sure it is everywhere. In one way or another, we must all be preservation officers. One of the important benefits of review such as we have just gone through is that it forces an organization to recognize significant issues in a formal way. It is commonplace to complain about salary, status, the lack of challenge, and upward mobility in, an or in our organizations, and especially in libraries. We have looked closely at comparable institutions as well as at ourselves, and have begun to make changes. I will mention one area that might be of interest, and this is the establishment of an internship program. Like all organizations, we need to attract young people of talent and energy. Our first group of five have just begun a two-year program in conjunction with formal graduate work. We plan to admit four to six each year. This program will be formally announced to the profession with invitations to apply in October. We hope to establish cooperative experiences with the British Library and similar institutions. I firmly believe that in a few years this program will be a rich source of talent for us and the profession at large. One other important initiative that has come out of our strategic planning will con and this will conclude my remarks about the HRC and I'll move to a few more general topics. If one is not careful, a research library can resemble a cafeteria where it lays out its riches and allows the line to pick and choose without direction. Of course, curators lead, curators guide, and curators promote their areas through essays, readers' guides, and exhibitions. But in many cases, this is simply not enough. Besides directing the library chronicle into the coverage of important areas, generally, we will begin to commission and invite essays on subjects which we believe deserve more attention. And these will be commissioned from leading scholars in the field. And we will embark on a publication series under our own imprint and and or in conjunction with the University of Texas Press. 
These books or monographs will have as their source materials from the Ransom Center. This development is in its embryonic stages, but we're in the process of contracting for our first book in the series this week. In concluding, I'll note that our exhibition schedule will become extremely ambitious with our and our plans are forming through 1993 when we hope to mount an important exhibition of modernism from the perspective of the last decade of the century. And I would imagine that this will be uh, on a three times as large a scale as our Baudelaire de Beckett exhibition, uh, which you might remember as, a, as an important exhibition. We will have another French exhibition in 1991 uh, with uh, new material that we've uh, acquired over the past decade since then, largely through the offices of Carlton Lake, our curator, our senior curator and chief of the French area. As I tried to make clear at the beginning of my remarks, none of us can develop our own institutions without studying carefully the climate of our entire profession, and perhaps more important, the rhythm of our culture. This latter subject is one of which Henry James would have said is a matter the full consideration of which would carry us far. And I'm obviously not pre prepared this evening to go very far at all. But I would like to conclude with a few musings on Bill Matheson's recent article in the RBMS Journal, in which he comments extensively on the results of his survey of 115 libraries that held 20th century collections. The title of the article is Institutional Collecting of 20th Century Literature. It is especially interesting in that it reflects broad-based opinions, and yet the opinions of the surveyor, and a very good one. And his opinions are very much impressed in that survey, if you've looked at it or read it. It is especially interesting in it that it reflects this breadth of 115 institutions. And Matheson's commentary overshadows the raw data that the survey produced. Yet, that data does fill in a picture that allows the reader constantly to test his or her own notions of important questions about institutional collecting and institutional practices with regard to 20th century collections and the whole idea that Tanzel raises of the idea of the comprehensive collection. Now, the questionnaire covered uh, four general sections. The first was collecting manuscripts. The second was selection criteria for an author's printed work. And the third section was comprehensive collecting. And the fourth, collection use. In commenting on judgment and criteria in the development of such collections, the author frequently refers to that pantheon, William Jackson, Fredson Bowers, Harry Ransom, and more contemporarily, Thomas Tanzel and uh, Peter Howard. Although cited in different contexts, their remarks collectively lay an important foundation for the significance of the comprehensive collection. Matheson also makes frequent reference to the Newberry's Melville collection as a model for comprehensive collecting. There are any number of points in this, essays, in this essay that intrigue me, a number, a, a, a number I would like to explore in detail with many of the people in this audience, but I'd just like to take up one or two here. An obvious and disappointing conclusion, at least for Matheson, is that most institutions fall far short of forming collections at the comprehensive level. 
In my own collecting of Joyce, for example, <clears throat> as impossible, as impossible as it is, I would never think of collecting less than Tansel would set up as an ideal for a comprehensive collection. Maniacal. With Joyce, this is, of course, impossible, but it's the only way I understand comprehensive. Yet I would question the research value of everything that I have collected as a collector of Joyce for 30 years. Or would I? Richard Landon's distinction between a kind of treasure trove and a special collection is worth noting in this context, I think. Writing of the University of Toronto's special collection, he states, rather an attempt was made to systematically build special collections for research purposes, such as that a scholar would have available in one place all the works by a particular author or on a particular subject necessary to pursue research at any level. A clear enough statement, as one librarian responded to uh, Matheson's questionnaire and said, we don't buy books and manuscripts, we buy research material. Yet, in the profession, we are left with compromises or different definitions of comprehensive, are we not? I would further add that most libraries with truly comprehensive collections, including ephemera, film scripts, reviews, translations, play adaptations, all editions, uh, all printings, all posthumous texts, and even t-shirts, were probably given such by a private collector or acquired the collection in toto. It is hard to justify the tenacity of the private collector in an institutional setting. On the other hand, as Matheson points out, quote, literary collections built only on first and, quote, significant editions lack the research potential which a high percentage of his respondents indicated was the motivation behind their institutional collecting. Paradoxical? Perhaps not, but certainly it's, it's, it's ambiguous what we call special collections, what we call comprehensive collections. Even under ideal conditions, however, it is virtually impossible to assemble a comprehensive collection. For example, the Ransom Center holds virtually all of Evelyn Waugh's manuscripts, and except for an extensive collection of his correspondence held by the family, a majority of that correspondence. We have a great deal of the pre-publication materials. We even have his personal library, his desk, his writing quills. How's that as a pre-publication material? That's really... Nearly all editions published during his lifetime. Now, I'd like to share with you a problem. The plethora of materials that followed after the international success of the filming of Brideshead Revisited will never be recovered. Now, one can argue, so what? As many of uh, the respondents to Matheson would. But you could also argue that this great public popularity, popularity 
had an enormous effect on how war is now received. And more importantly, how this success changed the way in which we read war today. Our responses to his work, in other words. Sebastian's teddy bear became an icon in London for six months. And the film's appeal to our nostalgia of the period raises questions about Charles Ryder's own sense of loss and certainly of Evelyn Waugh's. The popular commentary, the specially produced covers of Brideshead in paperback, the artwork on them, is extremely important as a 1980s commentary on Evelyn Waugh's work. All of these materials became artifacts that record an author's impact on a culture long after his death. What is an institution to do? What are we to do in this case? As a private collector, I can follow my mania, whereas an institution must constantly make choices that <clears throat> frequently preclude depth. Now, even if one admits <clears throat> the research value of all of this material, the prospect of finding it and acquiring it is dubious at best. There are, of course, many more complex questions related to this survey. For example, we know from Samuel Street's interesting survey in library trends of 1987, acquiring rare books by purchase, that libraries spend remarkable, remarkably little on rare materials from their budget lines. And gifts of books, archives, or even money do not offer the freedom to pursue the comprehensive collecting that builds collections on the Newberry's Melville model. Now, you might ask, you might well ask, how do issues such as these affect your post-50 authors, Mr. Staley? The purchase plan that you mentioned earlier. In a word, tremendously. But on this enigmatic note, let me conclude and, and thank you very much and I want to give special thanks to Terry Bellinger, who prescribed no direction for my remarks today. And uh, I don't know the format here, whether there is a, a, a possibility of, of, of questions or directions that you would like me to pursue about the Ransom Center, about 20th century collections, or would you like to ask, would you like to talk more about Matheson's uh, survey? How many of you have read that uh, the survey? Good. Five. 10 or 12. These, are, these are, the, are the issues that it seemed to me as, as we began looking at the Ransom Center in September and tried to bring together a strategic plan. And that's what it was, a strategic plan. And we tried to employ uh, uh, those uh, marvelous, uh, uh, sometimes inane, sometimes repetitive, sometimes boring, but, but frequently challenging questions that one asks oneself. And historically, at the Ransom Center, uh, I, I don't know uh, how much time I, I had to look at the history of the institution. It seems to me that most of the people in the book know the history better than many of the people who were there. Uh, and uh, that always stopped me a little bit because I didn't know how much was apocryphal and how much was true. And I always... Uh, loved the prospect of thinking of going into these rooms and finding vast amounts of material that were uncatalogued and first manuscripts of Joyce and, uh, and uh, all of these sorts of things that, that kept us uh, 
kept us uh, uh, always intrigued. Uh, and it's amazing that there are still things that are found at the Ransom Center that, that give you that sense of uh, not just gold in your attic. Uh, we came upon a book dealer in Germany whose materials Ransom had bought in 1959, I believe, and uh, all of this material was in a room. And somebody, why did Ransom ever buy this particular book dealer in Germany? And finally, uh, I was going through one of the rooms. And I said, you know, we really ought to open this material up. I mean, because of the issues of conservation and, and, and various other kinds of things. And sure enough, uh, found uh, about 23 letters uh, from Dorothy Richardson, the first stream of consciousness writer, and uh, uh, Gloria. From has uh, done the biography of uh, Dorothy Richardson, and she happens to be coming to the Ransom Center to work on the letters this summer, which she's in for a wonderful surprise. Uh, th this is material that we hadn't. Uh, we, so one of the one of the ways in which we will try to uh, get the material together is obviously through an extremely one great advantage we have is that we were so far behind and so primitive in automation that we are going to be able to leap a great deal of the technology of the 60s, and 70s, and even 80s, it seems to me, as we, we move ahead. And I, th I think of that as a real advantage, in, in, at least in, in my initial uh, explorations of, of this sort of thing. Uh, another, uh, another area that, that we have had a, 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 a great deal of interest in, and I think will be a direction of the center in the next years, is is the development of, of film archives. We'll never have the strength in, in the actual history of the film itself as UCLA or Southern Cal or even, or certainly Wisconsin, but with the Selznick archive, which uh, is again, was I took as if, if I can crack the problem of the Selznick archive, I think the rest of it would be easy. So uh, with a, without any trepidation at all, I said, well, we'll just take care of this one right away. It came in two semi-vans, and, and, and if you ever knew how a Hollywood studio worked, uh, everything was done in 25 copies, and, and Selznick was half throwing things around everywhere in the world. I mean, he really, he, before, long before, I mean, if, if, if he had lived in the age of fax machines and Xerox, we wouldn't have, we'd have filled up the entire uh, building at the Ransom Center. But fortunately, he was still at the carbon in those thin tissue sheets that you might remember. But I thought if we could, in some way, deal with this collection that had buffaloed us for eight years, maybe we could at least make some, and, and we're doing it. I mean, we are, uh, in our own primitive way, uh, we are dealing with this uh, uh, in, uh, with PCs, and, and we're trying to uh, uh, develop a, a, a good catalog for that. And it's going to open up other ways in which we try to deal with a film. Film, the archive of this is, has been uh, retarded in a number of ways because unlike a, unlike a publisher's file, the, the, the there's just so many different organizations and entities in a Hollywood studio. And this is the great example of the private Hollywood studio. Uh, have, uh, have interesting problems in, in collections that we're looking at now in terms of uh, that I have you're always dealing with 20th century material. You have these problems and, and uh, of authors' rights and copyrights and some of the issues at the Ransom Center, which uh, I had heard before I came down there about the, uh, certain aspects of the restrictiveness of the materials. And part of the 
part of the problem with that, I think, was that too many of the materials were accepted with certain kinds of restrictions that I certainly would never uh, uh, deal with now. And yet, and yet, I, I often wonder, we have some extremely important Faulkner material with some very severe restrictions on it, uh, which have uh, important uh, have an important place in Faulkner scholarship because it's never been seen, it's never been known, and it's speculated upon. And uh, I, I I thought to myself as I my first inclination going through this was, God, I'd never get in a deal like that. I know I would never get in a deal like that. And then I talked with Warren Roberts, who had been the director uh, early when Ransom was there, and we went out to this. Uh, it wasn't quite as hot as it is in New York and Austin, but God, it was a hot day. We were sitting in this Mexican restaurant. He said, well, let me tell you the story about that. And like all HRC stories, it gets long and convoluted and fascinating. And I'm sitting there with my uh, tamale there burning up. I'm just getting used to that kind of food. There. But I... Uh, I, uh, I, said, uh, I said, you know, I, don't, I, I was being very courteous, and he's a very courteous gentleman, and he said, well, he said, I talked to Dr. Ransom about the problem of restriction, and uh, we talked about it at great length. And he said, if you look at the file, and I had, there was all this debate, what do you think, he's got this and this and this. And he said, but it came down to it, I said, Dr. Ransom, he said, we either get it or we don't get it, because we aren't going to get it any other way. And I said, well, what did Dr. Ransom say? He just said two words, get it. So, I mean, you know, that's uh, probably what I'd have said, get it. I mean, these are questions that are, that are, that are very difficult uh, as we deal with the, these kinds of problems. And uh, I'm, I'm very much concerned in looking ahead in, in, the, in, the, in the relationships that we have with authors today. Now, since the Nixon papers, you know, a lot of the world's changed. It's changed for us a great deal. But uh, I, I just can't imagine getting involved in the kinds of complex restrictions that we did at a certain time. And yet, I guess this characterizes Ransom in a way that I think, I said it in a theoretical way, but let me give example to what I said earlier. He really, in reading the correspondence, and he was an enigmatic creature, but in reading the correspondence there is that one theme that he really was a reader of the culture. He really understood that culture, and he really believed that he only had a short time to do what he did, that the time was right. And the time was not right to put any money into cataloging, any money into preservation, any money into uh, uh, large staffs, hired young graduates to just put the stuff in the boxes and take it out to the research center. One guy said, somebody's doing a, uh, a book on Graham Greene and he desperately needs this one piece for, for the book. And we know we have it, but we can't find it. He said, he said, Dr. Ransom, we've got to get some catalogers here so we know what he got. He said, in time, dear boy, in time. And so, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you, we read these, I, I think in one sense, uh, a, a librarian just as any... Uh, critic of the culture has to have a sense, a notion of that time and that, that, that sense of when to do this and, and, and when to do that. I'm, I've covered a lot of ground today about one place and I, and I don't want to give the opinion that uh, I think what, one of the things that we have done in the past 10 months is look at a lot of you look at a lot of the things that are going on in other places and trying to understand them better and trying to look at things in a broader perspective. I think there are certain things that in each 
distinguished institution. Uh, ours happens to be, I think, the, the, the eclectic aspects of the collection, the variety, the photography collections, film, art, and, and, and the, in one sense, uh, I think in one way I'm managing a hotel. Uh, and there are all these different rooms of different people and different things, and there's a, there's a, a, a business office and a cigar store practically. And give, I mean, in one sense, it's, uh, it's not quite what I thought. Uh, and on the other hand, I'm not so quite sure that anybody else thought of it in that way either, and that's why it's uh, uh, going through some interesting times right now. Uh, I think, <clears throat> I also think that perhaps the most positive aspect of what I recognize in, this, in the shift and change with, within that culture is the seriousness with which the university looks upon that institution and looks upon it in its own way as, a, as an important part of what the university is as an, as an international institution. I think it very much sees the, that idea of a research library in the humanities as a key part of what it means to be a major comprehensive university. That's not, uh, that might be rare in itself, and, but for that I'm very, very grateful and thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you very much, Dr. Staley. Our usual format, by the way, is that at this time, I invite the audience to meet you over a cup of wine in room 523. And uh, I will now do so for the last time. The last time.